welcome one and all to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Welcome to the future, Pete. We are both looking up. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 305, Die Trying, comes to you now via Starburp. And news from the fleet before this episode leaves orbit. Pete, have to note that CBS continues to advertise Discovery Season 3 as having had extremely high critical marks with a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes and fan reactions through the roof. This is a well-earned victory lap for CBS All Access, the streamer in its twilight ahead of the wintertime rebranding. I only hope, Matt, that the show gets a fourth season. Now, Pete, you're being silly. It's already filming a fourth season. And Pete, it's so... It's funny you should mention this, and this is not part of our scripted pre-roll, but I will mention it nonetheless. Just as in the last week, shall we say, some factions uh, opposed to progress have started to crumble and fight within Uh, themselves. Temporal agents? Temporal agents, perhaps. Uh, So, too, amongst some of the loudest anti-discovery voices... Uh, the one was like, I hope it doesn't get a second season. And the other one was like, it's, uh, it's already filmed, or second, a fourth season. Uh, it already has started filming. Well, maybe it's not actually filming, but it is. And Pete, they're <laughs> fighting amongst themselves as to the existence of a fourth season. So Here, Here's a screen cap tweet of the editor editing footage from home. Yeah, it, it, that is good news for us. And... You know, particularly, I think we all continue to be amazed. You know, major complaints were not coming out of season one and season two from the Discovery Faithful. I don't think that we hoped for the show to get better, and here it is. And uh, Pete, what a time to be alive, even as the real world seems like a very perilous, strange new place. Uh, Here we are, some great Star Trek. Well, the escapism of developing an antidote to uh, an illness in a hopeful future, Matt. That's something we can all look up for. With that, let's head into our mission briefing. In his quarters, Captain Saru records a supplemental log as he puts on his uniform with grocery store produce aisle mist drifting around him. They're about to arrive at Federation and Starfleet headquarters. Pete, it is a Captain's Log starting an episode of Star Trek. I missed you, Captain's Log starting episodes of Star Trek, uh, giving us, you know, description for where things are headed. Uh, And indeed, as you mentioned, Pete, Federation and Starfleet HQ uh, is their destination. These two entities mushed into one. Uh, Saru hopes for an eager acceptance. And a bit later, he's observing the stars and Burnham, his number one, notes that they are ready. Saru hopes that what matters most has endured, you know, Pete, through the dark years. Uh, And Burnham also reminds us uh, at home that uh, The Burn is a season three mystery. Thank you very much. Keep your pencils sharpened as we look for details. Also, also, Pete, she'd like to find mom. You mean The Burn, hum? Perhaps, Pete, let's save that for theories. The story continues on the bridge. Detmer notes that they have arrived. Pete, but wait, are things distorted? Yes, there is a distortion field. Looks like a clear jellyfish 
uh, as they head to this rendezvous here. But Saru notes that this is a security measure to mask their location. They are expecting them. And he orders Detmer to take them in. Cue reaction shots before uh, the center of the object, the distortion field, filled with a brilliant light and futuristic ships, including at least one United Earth Defense Force vessel. Uh, Pete, there's also, amidst all these strange new designs, you have organic ships, holographic wall ships, detached nacelles, a flying rainforest, and Pete, so poignant, the Voyager J, and then to the side, perhaps not quite as in brilliant display, but something that I think that tugged at everyone's heartstrings in the last 48 hours, the USS Nog, an Eisenberg-class vessel. Yes, even a new Constitution class that might hold a crew of 2,000. On the Voyager J, Matt, um, which uh, Tilly doesn't know the number of letters in the alphabet, (laughs) Uh, Owo can't wait to hear those stories in a book by Kirsten Beyer. Pete, you read my mind. Um, And of course, uh, I mean... Both both parts, uh, not fan service, Pete, fan heart warmers. Um, and I'll just mention there was some clickbaity article wondering if the Voyager J is the original Voyager. Uh, that's not how Star Trek works. Right. Yeah. Um, but back to the story, uh, Burnham notes that the distortion field is made possible by all the ships there. At first, Pete, I thought that that was maybe some sort of story set up. Maybe it will be in the future, you know, something like, ah, oh, we lost part of the ships, so now the distortion field is gone. Or, Pete, Star Trek might be using metaphor that the combined efforts together result in, in this bastion of hope that we see. Saru orders Bryce to hail that Discovery is reporting for duty. They are scanned a through line with this new Starfleet and Federation and suddenly put on autopilot. Bryce is told via comms that they are expecting Captain First Officer and Tall to beam over. Uh, Burnham notes that these scans are so advanced, you know, the ones 931 years more sophisticated than they've ever seen before, that they must have picked up Adira's symbiont. Uh, Saru gives Nilsson the con, and they beam out in a flash to the Star Trek fanfare. Cue the title card, Matt. Rachel Antrel, again credited, but still no Adira, still no uh, Blue DeBario. Yes. I think, Pete, that's just a function, uh, as we had discussed in the last week or two, uh, of just shorter resumes uh, for these two newer actors where, where uh, Rachel Antretrill has enough heft to be here in the credits. We, of course, have the heftiest of all in terms of resume, special guest star Michelle Yeoh. This, an episode with the teleplay by Sean Cochran and story by James Duff and Sean Cochran, uh, and the episode directed by returning director Maja Rilo. Saru, Burnham, and Adira explore the gleaming Apple Store-esque hub as they are greeted by Starfleet Commander-in-Chief Charles Vance and Security Officer Lieutenant Willa. He hasn't seen many Kelpians lately because contact is limited since the burn 
which wasn't recent, was 120 years ago. Uh, pretty much the case with most Federation worlds these days. So Saru has learned here indirectly Kaminar did join the Federation. Doug Jones, obviously a great actor. Um, rarely does he get the close-up that he needs to act for. You know, usually it's voice, it's body movement, it's it's things of that sort. It's kind of the makeup. I don't want to I don't want to sell him short, but it's the it's him in the makeup doing the work. Here he gets a close-up, and the closest we've ever seen Saru smile is I in noted this moment. The same thing too, like <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's got a that's a. I'm not saying it's like oh he lifted a mountain, but like that's a big acting. That's a big physical moment there to be able to push through the makeup and do all of that. Um, so so an especially nice moment. Uh, I'll mention by the way, Pete, by way of tangent here. Uh, this was at the point in the episode uh, where my wife looked up. Um, she was kind of happily uh, tolerating the show being on, looked up, saw Charles Vance and said, oh, the mummy. Uh, of course, Oded Fair having played uh, having played uh, Ardeth Bay in the first two mummies, mummy movies. Um, anyhow, speaking of uh, of Fair, speaking of Charles Vance, he gets a report of an attack by the Emerald Chain and uh, Vance introduces himself to Adira Tal. Dialogue is exchanged that Senatal would have left Earth sooner, but he wanted to see Snow one more time. And Vance is quick, maybe Pete too quick, to note that he and Senna were familiar, but Adira, uh, with Adira he is not. So part of that maybe we'll circle back to in theories. He orders Willis to take Adira to medical for a full diagnostic. Vance is updated about the Kili refugees overflowing in sickbay. There's a Dr. Eli who we'll meet in a moment who is a bow-tied hologram <laughs> medical officer. Uh, he says they have four hours left at best. So we've got our story clock. They are suffering from cascading failure of the nervous system brought on by misfolding proteins or prions, which are actually a real phenomenon. Uh, they're not contagious, but there's no cure yet. And Burnham oversteps in. Saru soothes everything out. Hey, they just want to help the, the Federation family. But debrief comes first. Eli eyes them as they explain how they got to 3189. Red Angel suit went back into the wormhole, self-destructed to send the last signal. Uh, they only had one time crystal. Um, now this 100,000 year old sphere data that uh, Admiral Vance and Starfleet is now accountable for as Eli notes that Saru might be the last Kelpian with any kind of biochemical trace of his Vahari. Also an in-joke, Matt, that Burnham's limbic system is getting a workout, she must be prone to emotional exaggeration. So clearly the writers throwing shade back at people who say uh, Sinequa Martin Green must cry in every episode. Uh, add to that uh, the, the clear uh, explanation here that the sphere data is uh, conscious and benevolent and has merged with Discovery. Uh, just kind of mentioned, I think, in an offhand way as part of this larger debrief. But I know that that's 
that's a topic that we've discussed in the past. How much do they know? What's the exact, you know, what's the exact, uh, what's their understanding relative to our understanding? As for the state of the Federation, it's down to 38 member worlds, down from 350 at the peak. Maybe there's more, but definitively, space uh, subspace relays have gone down, so no one knows. That too, Pete, something baked into prior episodes, but not having been directly stated. So it's as if they listened to our podcast last <laughs> week and then said, let's make an episode to address those things. I Here kid, of course. <laughs> It, it actually is a case that they know they know they've raised some questions in this strange new world and we're all wondering what's going on and then here they are they've set the bowling pins up and they're knocking them down in a very uh, easy fashion indeed this hq as we've said before not just starfleet but the entire civilian government of the united federation of planets okay um and uh burnham wants to know about the burn but vance is not at liberty to discuss intel yet um the uh holographic doctor trained programmed to know whether they're lying um and he's been dismissed here but there's nothing in the database to verify the things they've told vance about uh history records that the discovery was destroyed in 2258 no mention of a spore drive. Saru explains how the Federation Starfleet would have erased those files, but still it doesn't uh, get past Vance that he can't corroborate this. Um, the history lesson is also that the Federation spent most of the 30th century fighting a war to uphold the temporal accords and time travel is outlawed. Their very presence there is a crime but saru says everything they've done past to present has been in uh accord with federation ideals burnham said that all organic life had been at stake if true vance acknowledges they owe them a debt but they can't trust them uh without risking uh and they need evidence here and Discovery is going to be requisitioned for analysis and retrofit. Not open for debate. They'll look over the logs. They'll debrief, debrief the crew, uh, see if their stories match. And Saru cannot ask why he needs to, if he's acted in accordance with the Federation ideals before, he's going to need to do it now. So the whole portion of this part of the scene uh, about setting the table properly uh first of all we have vance as the very not gene's trek person uh and us kind of again setting the table in terms of yes we've seen the adventures of the displacement activated spore drive and the existence of the ship and again here's why uh why star trek's before it did not talk about it taking place in times after it um we have the kind of check-in not just of the temporal war that of course wars that we remember from uh from enterprise but also, I think that's a story way to say we're we're not leaving the back door open for the Section Thirty One show or for going back in time or or any of that stuff. We really, you know, at least thus far, this scene saying that the show is committing to staying put, which is something we've heard echoed from Alex Kurtzman and others. That here are the rules in this essentially 
something that Star Trek Discovery has done before. This kind of is the new pilot for Star Trek Discovery in the 33rd century or 32nd century, whatever it is. This this is kind of the, the proper introduction of where they're at, when they're at, and the rules that the story presumably will be playing by. In Saru's writing room, they chew over this conversation, and Burnham talks about the value they have being able to operate the spore drive, but Saru says they're no longer out there and they have to follow orders. Uh, Burnham understandably doesn't want the crew pulled apart. Some of them might not recover. If they could only get their hands on the roster of planets that Keeley have been to and prove themselves. But Saru, the good soldier captain, says this has to be done through the proper channels, and he would have thought she learned this lesson by now. What's interesting about this scene, to my mind, is that it ties back to the pilot of the show, in that, yes, we know Burnham had this this Vulcan, dare say, unnatural childhood, and that she spent the first seven years of her time on the Senjo very disciplined in a Vulcan existence, but what we saw in the pilot was her um, acting in an extraordinary way. And I don't mean extraordinary necessarily as a bonus. I mean acting in a way that is outside the ordinary. And her her recognizing that the rules don't apply in this insane situation. And she must act outside them. And that's something that, of course, she being the lead, she being our hero, that she's done time and time again. But I kind of got the sense in this scene that Burnham that we saw in the pilot that we've seen act in that way since then for the purposes of story, that is her true nature. And here she is, I think, having settled into the role of number two, uh, perhaps it was always intended that way as we've as we've wondered, but she really is not able to make these even handed, you know, father, Captain Kirk, father, Picard kind of uh, decisions here. She's really she's ready to jump into action to do you know, good with a capital G and needs to be held back by her superior to have that mix of captain and number one to really have a, have the most successful combination of intent and execution. Who does number two work for? <laughs> In the shuttle bay, Detmer asks if they're breaking them up and Saru tells the crew there's no precedent for uh, who they are and their experience. So they just have to trust the process. The crew is apprehensive and Georgiou is defiant. Willa will call them in by department, starting with engineering, spore drive specialists, et cetera, et cetera. Cut to a good and humorous montage. Culver explaining clinical and emotional death via murder. But hey, he and his murderer are good now despite the fact that his murderer is 930 years in the past, and hopefully we'll see Shazad Latif again in Star Trek. Reno explains how she hooked up with Discovery when it was raining Starfleet officers. She needs snacks, later a drink. Stamets considers himself essential, though his interrogator may have debriefed Detmer to get that information. Uh, Reno thinks the Emerald Chain Orion Andorian Syndicate sounds like a ricin party drug. And Tilly explains how she got her hair blown out and became a Terran captain slash dominatrix before non comma D stonewalls. 
Some time goes by and Lieutenant Willa rebuffs Burnham's attempt to have Discovery help the Keeley, but Starfleet uh, is still uh, assessing the intentions of Discovery. Um, uh, Pete, I think hidden in this episode, both on the surface and hidden, are the major concerns that Starfleet has about Discovery. Uh, Again, it's on the surface, but I I suspect we'll talk about it more in the theory segment. Burnham highlights the fact that Discovery can go anywhere instantly, and maybe they can even save some lives. It's showing, of course, the deep altruism that this crew has. Pete, take us to Philippa Giorgio, who has no altruism. (laughs) She was picked up on scans right away, and a rigorous debrief is protocol for all Terrans. So there's two security people in addition to a bespectacled gentleman played by David Cronenberg. Don't look at him. Uh, This is her second universe, her third timeline. It depends how you look at it. She looks at it, Matt, by blinking, (laughs) which uh, causes both security holographic programs eventually to shut down. She dated control. All Terrans are duplicitous by their biology. In the past 100 years, they discovered there is a chimeric strain at the subatomic Terran level in the stem cell. Um, But silly hollow tricks are for emperors. They can't rattle her with fictional biological components to her nastiness. And after she short them both out, Cronenberg just shrugs (laughs) and uh, he explains that uh, he wears glasses because he thinks they make him look smarter and he likes them and she might decide to like him and he may debrief as he will. The two amazing things about this scene, first of all, the fact that Giorgio um, once again is so prepared for the unknown uh and and i dare say pete mirror Giorgio was misused for the first two seasons that comes with the asterisk of when she's in the mirror universe she's in her element so it's not really being misused but uh mirror Giorgio in the prime universe i shouldn't even say misused that's being a little too finger wacky she's being best used here because it's a world it's a not literally world it's a universe of mystery and unknown and fear and and things of that sort that the federation is trying to push against and she is uniquely suited to be evil in a world that has evil and she can do good with her evil uh, when she's not doing evil with her evil that's the one amazing thing of course all of it driven uh by michelle yo and and you know her iconic status Pete, I consider myself to be a little bit of a film snob, but I guess I'm a little bit more like Hollywood film snob. I don't know what David Cronenberg films I've seen in the past. I did not know he was an actor. I did not know he was so good. And I did not know that he could go toe-to-toe with international icon Michelle Yeoh. And that's what he does in this scene and in future scenes, uh, playing the the unnamed, uh, but perhaps to be named in the future, uh, Kovic who I think we will just keep calling David Cronenberg for fear that he's going to come haunt us in our dreams or something. In sickbay, the Keeley aliens, who are actually from the end of Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, Flatline, and Saru thinks that they have been to Erna, 
which has been deserted for centuries. It was an industrial seat, a hub for the enrichment of unstable metals, and uh, Burnham explains the Federation was just starting to sound the alarm about the toxicity in its atmosphere uh, and the thinning and the UVB rays that were mutating uh, anything that was there, that the Keeley must have eaten it, and now they are sick. Uh, there's a fix that Dr. Eli floats that he needs healthy protein samples to make an antidote, but no sample exists anymore. But wait, Matt, there is the story ship of the USS Tikoff. That's a seed vault ship that's uh, from Discovery's time that is still being manned in 3189. However, it's five months away. But Discovery can get there right away. Uh, okay, well, Discovery is going to go with a current Starfleet crew and Stamets because we actually need him. Vance orders Willa to scramble within the hour, but Burnham pushes back. You're going to waste time with a new crew. Watch your tone, Burnham. You're not home yet. Saru, again, smooths things over, and he puts himself up as collateral. He will remain there. Willa and two security officers will accompany the Discovery. They've got to get back fast, or it all comes down on Saru. On the Discovery Bridge, Burnham's getting ready to go. Pete, obviously Burnham in command at the moment. Burnham, not captain. Uh, but this a moment that I think we widely anticipated when the show was first announced yeah. widely anticipated before watching the pilot and then you know wait everything just went wrong and then the rest of the first season and realizing that they were not taking a short path to captain burnham of the uss discovery so here we finally get that in spirit if not in actuality willa is unimpressed uh, however our crew is more than ready uh, burnham steps to the view screen calls black alert and Discovery is gone, uh, and it arrives outside an ion storm. Uh, it should be where the Tikoff is, however, it's not there. Perhaps the ship is in the storm. Uh, they're going to prep tractor beams. Detmer is going to fly them to it, but shields up. They're hit by an energy pulse. It's a bumpy ride. Pete, uh, is this curtains for the USS Discovery? If not for Detmer, Matt, maybe it would be. There's some holdover drama from whatever... She continues to suffer from Awoshikun, uh, nudges her, encourages her, and afterward praises her along with Burnham uh, for getting through the crisis before they are able to get close enough to lock a tractor beam on the Tikoff and pull that up. Um, we learn further that uh, it is a ship that for the last 500 years they've been taking uh turns the federation has um with who's watching it and beep boop beep what do you know non who is standing in front of me there is a barzon family on there most recently they joined the federation in the 25th century i had no idea that i'm pretty sure you you did not that they had never joined the federation i mean we've seen them in several iterations of star trek um non has not seen a barzon uh since she joined up and that the atmosphere in the teak will mean that 
everybody else will need breathing apparatus. The seed vault can only be ex uh, accessed through Beeman, so the transporter chief needs to be ready. Hey, Nilsson, you already had the con this episode. Reese, now you take the con. I did have the vague memory from TNG, from the episode, The Price, uh, the bars on, let's say, Pete, not being at the crossroads of the Federation, not being the highest highs. Uh, in a little bit, of course, we're going to get non-supplementing that with uh, it being a rather uh, threadbare species, uh, kind of far from the action and whatnot. Pete, I will assume, by the way, that uh, in the grand tradition of, of thoughtful and heartfelt uh, ship names, I assume that the Tikoff, because it's so small, it's named for the TikTok, which is the small <laughs> video site. Here, you just you make a little Tikoff, and you kind of go, da, 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 and you keep your seeds, and, and you know, it's the tiny TikTok. I found it to be an illusion, probably, to someone of uh, Eastern European or Russian ancestry. Um, th that could be too. Um, I know that while on the ship here, I, indeed, Pete, perhaps it's, uh, Gavriel Andronovich Tikov, the Soviet astronomer and uh, pioneer of astrobiology and father of astrobotany. Maybe and creator it's... of TikTok. <laughs> Pete, uh, I'm not saying that somebody should go to Wikipedia to update the fact that though, um, though Mr. Tikov died in 1960, perhaps we could add uh, to his Wikipedia that he also is the inventor of TikTok. Um, I, I see, though, in all sincerity, there's a moon crater uh, on Pete, our, the moon. There's a Martian crater and an asteroid all named for Tikoff. So this certainly very well named, particularly since we're talking astrobotany seed ship. Uh, Pete, there might be a little bit of an Earther bias towards the Federation naming scheme, the Starfleet naming scheme, but, but them's the breaks. Um, ultimately, though, Culber is called to the bridge. Uh, this is why Owo scans the ship. Toxicity is low but odd. Um, and uh, we're, we're quickly uh, getting ready for Burnham, Culber, and, uh, and Nan to beam on over. Um, I would have thought that maybe Willa would have joined for, like, protocol reasons. But I think story reasons win out because the story that we're about to see unfold on the Tikoff does not have any like there's not any dramatic room for willow to be like wait don't do that wait what's this what why are you you know like th there's right. no story bonus even though i really think willow should have gone along and she serves her purpose with the science team over on the vessel in a little bit aboard the teak off uh it's a garden all over the place the seed vault has been compromised the barzon atmosphere uh, leads to accelerated plant growth and also non's eyes are different real air real her the radiation uh, levels are safe Colbert says uh, there's a family of four that they're looking for Colbert detects a life sign for a second and then not um, and we notice as the viewer there is phasing behind him take us back to Cronenberg, Matt, and his holographic badge. Look, Star Trek sages that are out there, Alex, though you swear not to listen to podcasts, I bet you are listening. Um, can we get a short trek that's just Michelle Yeoh and David Cronenberg 
just hurling lines at each other, rat-a-tat style. Just give me eight minutes of that, and I will happily pay for uh, the CBS All Access, despite the fact that their um, customer service refuses to acknowledge any communication, which is weird. But I digress, Pete. Back to Philippa, uh, her her unnamed questioner notes that his uh, he sees that she is interested in his badge. Uh, Pete, I believe this is the first time that the badge is also displaying uh, you know, a holographic display, although I feel like maybe an episode or two ago we saw that as well. But I digress. He just simply takes it off, gives it to her to play with. She drops it on the floor, then smashes with it, uh, smashes it to kind of you know sift through the pieces. Um, it's unclear to him why she would have come along for this journey. He notes that his birthday is April 5th. That is a Terran holy day, the first day of a crossover between the Terrans and the Vulcans. So just to keep track here, Pete, or you tell me if I kept track properly, because um, it was only on second viewing I kind of fully understood. It was at this date in the 2060s, I believe, when a Vulcan Prime ship crossed over to a Terran ship, or perhaps vice versa. But that was the first time that our universe and the Mirror Universe collided. Is that correct? We've seen it on Star Trek Enterprise uh, a tease sequence, Matt, before the Terran credits um, with the Faith in the Heart song. Um, but wait, Pete, I thought that the people behind modern Star Trek didn't like the old Star Trek and didn't make, didn't know anything about Voyager, Deep Space Nine, or Star Trek Enterprise. What? Yeah. Um, anyhow, he notes rather curiously that he's had a fascination with the Terrans since he was a boy. He's been always interested in this group that has the Mac, the Maxim because we want to, um, he offers to answer his questions after she asks some, and this Pete is where you have two really veteran actors just flying back and forth at the lines here. He decides that the only way he will learn from her is with the questions she asks him. Therefore, she may ask questions not as a quid pro quo of I ask and you ask, but rather she asks and he infers. Wow. Um, some of the questions she asks, who's in charge? Who perpetrated the burn? Pete, it's like she wants to feed our theory segment. <laughs> she does here. Uh, so he says she has to pick one question there are conflicting theories, but there's no hard proof to the particular bad guy behind the burn. Uh, yet the Federation endures unlike the Terran Empire, which fell centuries ago. Also, he wants to know if she is aware of the distance uh, their universes continue to separate and that there's not been a single crossing from one into the other in 500 years, so he says. Um, she thinks that Cronenberg and the Federation are afraid of whoever did this, this being the burn, being merciless, that the weakness of people is most often people, but Cronenberg detracts from this that uh, Georgiou would fall in line with Discovery because there's a person there that she cares about. Regardless of what other uh, theories we might get from the the unnamed Kovic, can we call him that? 
um, you know, we'll talk about him more in the theory segment. I think one obvious takeaway here is he is more than a, maybe not more than a match. He is a match for her. And this is the seduction slash conflict, the intellectual seduction. I didn't know this show needed. Uh, the story returns to the Tikoff where our discovery crew hears the family singing. Turns out it's hollow mom and hollow kids. Oh, and hollow dad as well. Uh, mom is singing the same melody Senatal knew from his childhood. How odd. Uh, Pete, we have been tasked uh, to to talk more about that in the theory segment. And hopefully uh, you have some answers. Um, Burnham decides she's ready to go into the vault, which has already been established as beam in only. So she beams in. It's spinning all around for what I'm going to say are sci-fi reasons. I only say that because I saw a cool video on YouTube uh, in the last month about the Norwegian seed vault that is attempting to do the same thing as the Tikoff here for the same kind of terrifying reasons. Um, and it's just a, you know, I mean, it's elegantly constructed into the side of a mountain and blah, 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 but it's ultimately just a big library for seeds that sits there. But I get it, Pete. It's sci-fi. It's a thousand years in the future. I'll allow it. Yeah, it's a it's a cool story conceit. Um, Culber finds out from Nan that uh, she wishes she had gone home before they went to the future and that her species is known for two things, their diligence and poverty. Um, and what little that they have, they invest in their children. He asks if her family would have been proud uh, that she went in a Starfleet, but she knows that they were devastated and she can only imagine what they heard once she was reported as dead um, and how they reacted. But uh, the last time she's heard her language spoken was now, and she starts searching the logs here. Dr. Addis, the father in the first log, explains it's been four months since they arrived and it's brought their family closer the next log we go right to the trouble that uh there's an ion storm that their distress calls um cannot uh be answered and that they cannot he cannot identify the light that hurt the rest of his family um and he has to find a cure before it disappears she replays it pouring over for details when Culber says that she needs to come over. He's found a section that's running on full power and they find cryo tubes with the mother and the two daughters already dead. And that, um, Addis is alive. Uh, he broke open the seed vault to find a cure or a miracle. Uh, but where is he? And meanwhile, in the seed vault, Burnham is denied on her attempts to access the code and Addis attacks and phases away. So to recap here, we have Addis's logs. Hey, life is great. Hey, there's a weird ion storm light. Oh no, things are worse. Then he's phasing. Pete, phasing into some sort of creature. A little bit later, we're going to add the transporter into the mix here. Wait, kind of sounds like the movie The Fly. Wait, 1986 The Fly, directed by <laughs> David Cronenberg. Wow. They did they did uh The Fly in this episode. Um uh, Venus Flytrap. Uh, there you go. It's all <laughs> th th this is this is just 
you know, the snake, the, the alien snake. These proteins himself. of this episode are, are folding in upon themselves. Uh, indeed they are. Um, in the vault, uh, Burnham detects something is wrong. Um, and then Addis arrives to fight her, you know, zips in, zoops in to fight her. Then all of a sudden he's gone. Later, Burnham info shares the fact of this to Non and Culber. It sounds like his grief has disconnected him from reality. Uh, Non um, quietly but fiercely notes that Barzan see death differently. uh, And Burnham intuits that maybe the phasing is the key. Which takes us perfectly to the science lab where Stamets, Reno, and Tilly are analyzing the radiation in a unique, unprofessional, and ultimately (laughs) successful way. they they find it interesting that Addis is phasing, and then very quickly in a a, a traditional I was going to say classic in a traditional Star Trek scene of tech the tech, and I'm sure if you have backgrounds in the science that they are talking about, it's all vaguely plausible, perhaps not you know literally true, but it's all kind of vaguely making sense for most of us. It's a bunch of words that that some of which sound vaguely familiar, but if Addis had to beam in. Maybe he was hit by a coronal mass ejection. Pete, that's a CME or a star burp. Uh, by the way, Pete, uh, I love the character of star burp on, uh, on Battlestar Galactica. Um, <laughs> that would have killed him. But since star he was Starburp was on uh, Mandalorian this week. Oh, the, Pete, hashtag it's all uh, connected. <laughs> um, but th- there could be the salute there. It's a quick acto moment. And um, there's a solution to things, too. But he won't like it. Dramatic end of scene. Pete, as you take us back to the takeoff. Willa, having witnessed all of the dysfunction here, you know, which is part of the team. Um, So they're going to need to lure Addis out. Cut to the cryotubes where there's a power failure warning. And Tilly uh, gets him and beams him into the vault, taking him back into phase. Um, Non talks to him, but Culber takes Burnham aside to explain it's too personal for Non. They share the same ethos. Ultimately, through talking to um, Addis, Burnham uh, is able to get the code to the seed vault. It is Ama and Tulpra. Uh, Nan tells us the names of the two most beautiful moons in their system, but also the names of his daughters, of course. The seeds are unlocked in a really cool sequence that even features the practical of the popcorn kernels inside the little shaky thing sound effect. Um, And Addis will not leave his family but Culber says he's incapable of rational decisions. This living history of the Federation in the Tikoff is important. Uh, Culber is taxed by Burnham to take the seeds back to the science lab and work on the antidote. And Burnham says that Starfleet does not leave uh, people behind. So non volunteers to stay. This seed delivery moment, I think, typical of where the show uh, has ended up, which is to say, initially I was like, that's not how such a thing would work. I mean, I've seen video of advanced university libraries where, you know, a robot arm goes and pulls the thing down and twists and turns and puts it in the tray to deliver it and things like that. And it's like, wait, 
we've gotten back to a point where the future is so distant that you know just as in classic trek you could be like i'm gonna spray paint bubble wrap and call it you know uh call it a an energon protector and that just kind of that just worked like you you kind of wouldn't question it because you didn't know some of the words and because it was you know inspiring far out science fiction here too uh I know we have technology today that wouldn't make all the zipping and the zooming and the twisting necessary. And I don't quite know why it goes light, 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 light all the way down, but it looks cool. It's an unimaginable future. We're kind of, again, we're unshackled by the, by by this time jump here. Um, What we are shackled by Pete is this moment that I did not see coming. The notion that Nan was going to stay. Um, She's prepared to give up her career. She says that she's, prepared to do that after what she went through with Arium, um, which I know has been referenced. I don't know that maybe that was a thousand percent solidified in season two. So there's a little bit of kind of, you know, backward appropriation of story stuff, but fine, I get it. Uh, Nan says she'll be able to go home. How about she thanks Burnham for the inspirational words and example. Uh, and Burnham says they hope their paths will cross again, which Pete seems to be another stick a pin in it story moment fingers crossed that we get rachel and trill uh again very very soon uh with that um they uh, our our heroes beam out non watches discovery jump away pete i guess she didn't even need like a duffel bag of her favorite (laughs) stuffed animal and a picture of the time she went to capital city on barzan Uh, an unsentimental gal pete who's proud to represent her people on the seed ship that Tikov must be really, really self-sufficient. Uh, back at Starfleet slash Federation headquarters here, Vance knows all about how Detmer and Awoshikun piloted into the Ion Storm, that Nan remained on duty. Uh, Saru explains that the crew understood what was needed and they are ready for more, but... There are no more five-year missions, Matt, because exploration is a luxury they can no longer afford. Um, And Saru counters with an anecdote about Giotto, the uh, pre-Renaissance painter. Um, He sparked a three-point perspective, and he saw depth that the humans here began to look up and together discovery will help Starfleet and the Federation look up. Vance notes that yes, they've been in triage for far too long. And Burnham says that between the spore drive, our crew and the sphere data, keep us together, let us help. Uh, But Vance continues to talk about Detmer here, that her baselines are unsteady, to put it mildly. They're not in the Renaissance yet. There's lots of burn theories, have been for 120 years, but there's more pressing concerns. Ultimately, he welcomes them home. Dr. Culber injects the aliens from the end of Revenge of the Sith, who were able to deliver uh, Luke and Leia, yet not save um Padme from dying of a broken heart because George Lucas at that point in his career could no longer write uh and Willa notes that the lullaby known by the Barzans and the uh the trill um that things get stuck 
in the ether. Uh, Pete, I shall work in reverse here. This song thing sounds like it's being set up as dun, 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 a season mystery. Uh, also, as for George Lucas, I think it proof that the the fading uh, Galactic Republic uh, did not have proper OBGYN care, and perhaps uh, no one writing the script had ever received OBGYN care. Uh, story by George Lucas. Yep, that, that all seems to track. Um, back to Vance. Uh, Oded Fair has a thankless job, I think, for most of this episode, which is... He's the guy telling our kind-hearted heroes no, and we don't exactly know why. Um, obviously, some theories to be had, some general broad strokes in terms of security or lack thereof uh, within the Federation, and we don't know who the bad guy was and all of that. But in this moment where he admits that the Federation has been in triage a long time, here we see Oded Fear let Charles Vance's exterior break a bit. You see in him, in that moment, you know, in this guest role where he's not getting a ton of scenes. You know, Oded Fear has had a fantastic career since The Mummy in 1999. Um, but not somebody who's, you know, Oscar nominated for that great, you know, uh, drama about a violin player who's homeless and, you know, whatever. Here, Oded Fear just, he, he, he gives Vance this sense of um, George Washington at, at the low points of the American Revolution, George Washington at Valley Forge, where maybe this is all for naught, but I, I'm the only one who can put on a brave face and change other people's perspectives to think they have a brave face too. Uh, we see all of that in that moment, and it's just, it's an astonishing acting moment for a point in the story where there's other things to do, and, and he just needs to nail it, and he does. And it's a glimmer of hope that Vance is not a big jerky jerk that that he has a weight on his shoulders that we can barely imagine. With the music mystery still hanging in the ether, Burnham finds Philippa in the hallway of Discovery. Hey, Philippa, about this music. Hey, Philippa. Hey, Philippa. And she just stares there. And that's a great moment, followed by another great moment out of Michelle Yeoh, who once she comes to from the stair and plays it off, gives this look toward the camera back to Burnham, like what the heck just happened to me? And that's a moment that you only get in TV and film. You wouldn't get that on the stage. I guess you could describe it on the page, but it's so clear just because of where the camera is and she's facing the camera and all of that, that we see Philippa, shaken from the moment but burnham does not so we are in on a secret that are you know that that all the good guys on the ship are not and it's it just adds to the mystery there the episode concludes largely as it started i mean we started with the the a prelude the captain's log in the quarters but we end with saru and burnham looking out the window does this feel like home not yet uh but nonetheless the federation is an ideal Saru gently chides Burnham for being so direct with the Admiral, uh, lest it impact Captain and Number One together. Saru is certain of one thing. We are looking up. Pete, that'll line that's best this Saturday, and not when we were recording uh, in a more uncertain <laughs> time last Saturday. I'm not trying to put Star Trek ahead, the other ahead of the other needs of the world, but sometimes things happen for a reason, and boy, this was a great line and a great 
episode for this particular week, uh, particularly as the camera pulls out, showing Starfleet as it is. There's still so much we don't know. Pete, we have an incoming threat analysis. Oh my, will, Pete, will I lose a, a lose a rank if I suggest that Admiral Vance should be at the top of the list? No, because as you mentioned before, he's cast in such a way that he has to be the bad guy. And for realistic story purposes, particularly having fought a temporal war that they've now pushed past and a diminished Federation and Starfleet, that he can't just accept a 931-year-old vessel with open arms. Oh, great, here's a mission that there need to be dire circumstances for him to even consider. Nay, allow that mission to go on. This was an episode about them rendezvousing with the rest of the fleet about proving their worth and their need to stay together. So those things all had to happen. And as a necessary person on the other end of that conflict, here is the commander in chief of Starfleet. We have the Emerald chain. uh, That's your Andorian Orion syndicate named uh, thoughts on it being a big season threat, or is this just, Another example in this episode of you, you, you saw a thing prior in the season. You have questions. We have answers. Vance floated a name, Osira. Um, it feels like a misdirect that this is the big bad of the season, that this is the control, that this is the Klingons. Um, I get the feeling that our next threat might be um i'm inclined to agree what's weird is you know i I joked slash not joked earlier that this is this is the pilot of season three of discovery or whatever albeit in the fifth episode i kind of i wonder pete between now and january 7th uh the end of the season or or january 8th for our international friends um is there enough time to do a go hunt the Emerald chain and fight them and whatnot storyline? I mean, there, I guess there is, but I just feel like Pete, I feel like you might be right that uh, the David Cronenberg character, uh, Kovic, as he's been named in some quarters, though not on screen. Um, what's up with him? I, I certainly have theories galore, but what are your thoughts on him as a threat, a real threat? I'll I'll address just the threat nature here before we talk theories next segment, but somebody that goes toe to toe with Emperor Giorgio should definitely be regarded as dangerous. Um, And whatever has happened to her by the end of the episode, if you can, if you can declaw her heavens to think, what you might be capable of on your own Um, and not fully understanding the relationship between him and Starfleet Federation that Vance doesn't interact with him in this episode. It might be the evil that you need and in a diminished capacity again might allow for the sake of, you know, combating and uh, attempting to um, solve problems, 
But uh, hey, Matt, if only Section 31 had this artificial intelligence that gained sentience and got completely out of control and made it necessary so that Discovery had to go all the way into the future, I feel a similar vibe with the introduction of Cronenberg. I think time will certainly tell with that. Certainly seemingly self-contained in this episode was Dr. Addis. Pete, though he might have been sort of a, a, a Brundlefly type man driven to extremes, um, somebody who is ultimately focused on duty, focused on family, focused on the community. I think we leave him and this storyline at an interesting point. He did not receive treatment. Non's going to finish the watch. She's going to go back to Barzon. She's going to bury the family. It's implied he as well. Um, I have to imagine we're going to see Commander Non again. Uh, certainly want Rachel Anterill to remain with this show. I think she's been an excellent addition to the cast and, you know, the way that we develop her. In this episode, I mean, shades of lost, Matt, you get the you get the character story and they go away. Yeah. And and Pete, if there's one threat to my heart in this episode, it's losing non. Uh, although, I mean, is there a bigger tip towards the audience, you know, to tip of, of story direction towards the audience than to say, I hope we meet again mm -hmm. soon. <laughs> um, I, to me, it's it, to me. It's not a question of when this season, or not or rather, it's not the question if this season is when this season she will return, and hopefully for successive episodes. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I'm sure there's a story dependent reason she will need to come back, and that's fine. And, and let's hope that that happens, Matt. Uh, indeed, and of course, Pete, just to highlight, there she is trying to support her community, and thanks to those who support us, those in our community, those who go to patreon.com slash fantasticgeek to make sure that all the bleeps and the bloops stay out there. Pete, it's rather like we are our own teak-off with our own Fantastic Geek history, and uh, and our patrons help make it possible. I was just having a conversation yesterday with a patron who logged on to uh, his account and noticed there was a new thing we had put up there to check out. So we're always looking to add value to that on top of you placing your value in our product, investing in us, in the Federation, in Starfleet for Fantastic Geek. Pete, let's set our own long-range sensors to the Cronenberg character, to Kovic. Pete, is he a Terran fetishist a la Chris Cooper's Nazi obsession in American Beauty? Is Kovic eager to run a Terran Empire flag up the back of his space truck? <laughs> let's, let's hope not. If he did, maybe it should be at half-mast R.I.P. Uh, Terran Empire. But, Matt... The theory I'll come back at you with, did we just see um, Philippa Giorgio's boss for the Section 31 series? Oh my goodness, Pete. Cronenberg as 
and David Cronenberg in the credits and being the guy that's like, all right, today's mission, if you choose to accept it. Wait, what am I saying? You have to. You're in section 31. Cronenberg is so good an actor here, and I don't know if he's playing himself. I'm I, I'm sure I've never seen him act before. Um, and, and indeed, I wasn't aware that he directed The Fly until I just made the connection earlier. So maybe I've seen one Cronenberg-directed film. He is so good and has such an authoritative but dry presentation. The way he pronounces words is wonderful. I can only hope that they are setting up him as a recurring or weekly you know, boss man sending Giorgio out on missions. I would love it. I would love it. All the Terran stuff. And that's clearly the point of this story with the greatest intrigue in this episode. I can't help, but have the specter of Lorca in my mind. Yeah. And I think, I think that's possible. I I think as well for, for Kovich to say uh, the door has been closed, it hasn't been opened in 500 years. Okay, could he be lying? Maybe, although this is an episode that is is intentionally closing a lot of doors. No more time crystals. You're not going back. No more. The, no more. You know. No. No quick burn answers. We're not going to reveal it was the Klingons next week, etc. Uh, however, since it is the the Terran universe, and because that's the story excuse to be like. Wait, you mean on the other Deep Space Nine, it's got all the Deep Space Nine regulars, they just get to dress up in leather this week? Oh, right, that's the conceit of the Mirror Universe. Everything is now possible. For example, did, uh, did maybe not Mirror Giorgio, did um, nice, uh, did, did Prime Lorca, who got sent to the Mirror Universe, also somehow get sent into the future on the ISS Discovery? Crazy things like that are now possible because the mirror universe lets us flirt with things that are dumb story things, but it only lasts for while there's the crossing over storm or until we beam back or, or things of that sort. So the fact that Giorgio is pausing there, is she crossing back over to the world is whatever it is. It's a universe of possibilities in an episode that's trying to say, stop looking to old Star Trek. We're making new Star Trek. And to retroactively establish that the Terrans have a biological reason why they're bad and like goatees and leather and stabbing people after sex. (laughs) Well, and let me say in all sincerity, Pete, if we are just watching Star Trek for fun people in pajamas who, you know, shoot space lasers and sometimes wear uh, makeup, then fine. There's a science AI says there's a biological imperative for Terrence to be bad. Uh, If we are going to watch Star Trek with any sort of sense of metaphor or depth or reflection towards our own world, which I know is something we're going to talk about in the feedback segment, um, then let's look at that language there genetically predisposed towards aggression and anger and evil that very quickly sounds like things said in the 19th and 20th centuries uh about uh people of african descent or east european descent or jewish background etc etc yes we can all agree that terrans are all bad and that's kind of like I don't mean to misuse a phrase here, but that's kind of like a story safe space where we know all the Terrans are bad. Like there's no, 
you know, just like the Romulans always, the Romulans as a group always end up being the baddies. Klingons are kind of a cool biker gang for Picard, and sometimes they're trouble, and then there's the wine, but sometimes they want to, you know, the, the, the ladies want to, you know what, with Riker and all that, but they're kind of cool now. No, Romulans are bad, Terrans are the worst, but look, we're using language here that should raise concerns for us as thinking human beings about a show that's trying to talk to us about us, not... Look, there's a lady with a tiny bikini who we painted orange. That's cool. And I think that begs the question with the state that we find Giorgio at the end of the episode has something been done to her Terran biology. We leave her, we return to her. She's back on Discovery. We don't know what's happened in between. Um, is that even her? Do, do I need to blink at her rapidly uh, to know if she is a holographic AI? I mean, they established that there's a, a faint echo to the AIs, to the holograms in this episode, and some of them wear bow ties. None of that is her style and wouldn't put it past Cronenberg to uh, you know take those elements away so that she can blend in. I think that's a theory to watch. Uh, another large theory, uh, Pete, my friend and yours, Andre Yeager, had asked us to uh, to, to share our theories about the music, uh, this shared song that, that Senatal had from his childhood that uh, Willa and others, half the people around here know that song, kind of, sort of. Um, Pete, I can go as far as to say, it is the beginning of a big season-long mystery, <laughs> the elements of which will be revealed later. Then I saw Andre's tweet, and I was like, oh, no, we need to dig more. So, Pete, uh, I give that to you. What will you tell the, 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 the gentlemanly Andre? What is the song all about? Can you settle it once and for all, much like Ash Tyler and Folk? Go ahead. Give <laughs> us the definitive final answer. I, all right. I don't think I've cracked this one the way I cracked that one in the first episode. Uh, I have two working theories. The first is maybe this is some form of Federation national anthem, that it's a lullaby, something comforting, something that uh, later Willa says, you get stuck in the ether. Maybe it's that, you know, we, we put it all together. Here's the cello portion. Here's the, the hum portion. Oh my God, it's the next generation, the motion picture acoustic uh, anthem. That'd be kind of cool in a, in a season that's about reestablishing the Federation and Starfleet. The only thing it made me think of uh, from the world of Star Trek was that season seven Next Generation episode. Side note, Pete, I think that was a season by and large that was about for the creatives, it was about kind of completing the journey. And hey, we never we never really did talk enough about the ecology. Let's do an ecology episode. Let's do this. There's the episode where, oh man, there's all bits of common DNA or whatever. And it's like, but wait, only if the humans and the Vulcans and the Klingons and the Romulans, if we all work together, then we can put it all in the scanner and real uh, reveal that there's the base species from millions of years ago that was the only species out there with one head and two arms and two legs and that's why we all look similar and we've answered that that question and we've all had a message here about our underlying 
humanity for everybody at home and 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 all of that it made me think of that like it's it's clear it's clearly meant to be a unifying thing but it probably won't be and when we put the song all together we'll unlock the secret from the past in part because star trek has already done just that so i'm i'm a bit stumped uh and await further details uh in the future my other operating theory since and and you're talking to a non-musical musician person here since music is mathematical is there some kind of code tucked into it that seems like a very star trek thing like i could definitely see at the beginning of the season they track down the esteemed university of toronto music professor and get a math professor and say all right how do we do a code that's in you know do we do it in the the eight tone scale do we do a 12 what is it that can we do okay now sign this pile of ndas so you can't dare share the secret um but, but pete i do like that one speaking of secrets why won't non answer any of the, the debriefing questions and is it because the story is trying to give her uh, a launching pad for her exit I think it was just that. I think it was, all right, this is the security officer. She's not going to play ball. Uh, go ahead and throw me in the break there, hologram. And there. Pete, last one for me. Uh, Vance, quick to say to uh, to Adiratal, don't forget, Senatal and I may have been close, but you I do not know. Uh, perhaps was Vance saying, and don't say anything further, perhaps, Pete, were Vance and Senatal uh, romantic in the past? The word used was familiar, Matt, and now that you've gotten into what we do in the shadows, my headcanon went to, okay, Vance was clearly the Guillermo to Senatal's uh, Vlad the Impaler type. (laughs) Uh, So, Pete, (laughs) I know you're saying it jokingly, but I do love the idea that we are setting up the the Star Trek short or perhaps just a, a, a little, you know, maybe a series of shorts called Star Trek colon vampires we get kind of the vance and senatal adventures and uh workplace comedy uh kind of documentary style and you know senatal yeah that that, that could be a ton of fun though i know you kid uh what theories only matt what comes of it is that in season four of discovery we get a new set we get a bar and uh the bartender character that we're going to we're going to bring in much like uh, next generation did for its second season they'll go get a uh, a, a Whoopi Goldberg esque uh, actor to play Jackie Daytona human bartender <laughs> well Pete I would argue that there's only one Wookie Whoopi Goldberg esque person that's Whoopi Goldberg uh, but Pete what other theories do you have Burnham's mother, um, we talked about it in previous episodes. It comes up here. I feel like it's on a collision course with the burn. I was very surprised to see her ask about her mother for the very reasons that we discussed in the past. If they wanted to leave that story uh, and not explore it anymore, then it would have been like, if you're going to bring it up, it would have been goodbye mom you know but instead this now a new open mystery um 
And Pete, you could be on to something. I mean, the show has been the show has been unafraid to make Discovery the center of the story universe. Not just, you know, because the adventures take place there, but like it's the thing that kicks off the Klingon War and it's the thing that ends the Klingon War. And it's, you know, the 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 latest in the crossover with the Terrans, and not just any Terrans, the Emperor and all of that. The notion that mom may have perpetrated by accident this death of of millions and millions of people it it feels right even though i hope it's wrong voyager j fan service or are we going to get a little bit more and was that other constitution the constitution we all hope that it is well as i've said before we've had two seasons of discovery end with uh and on the enterprise um we've had one season of lower decks end with enterprise characters i would welcome if this season is not wait look who's coming through the hollow thing it's or the security field or whatever it is it's uh thomas Riker the 78th and it's played by jonathan frakes and he's the captain of the enterprise you know the enterprise uh you know p or whatever like I don't know that we need that. I think, look, do we like those moments? Absolutely. Would Awoshikan, as somebody from her time period where the Crossfield class is really awesome and really new, but where do you want to end up? You want to end up on a Constitution class ship. That's the apex of the, the Starfleet hierarchy. Um, of course, you'd be asking about that. And she's asking for us, you know, what does that style look like? Um, but I think, too, the show rightly gives us love to other Star Treks. It gives us this moment that the Voyager uh, the Voyager reputation, which is something that largely did not occur on screen for the show, you know, occasionally those messages back home and, and whatnot towards the end of the series. But we didn't see really the legacy of, you know, the parade in San Francisco and the earthwide esteem, and they all got medals at, you know, at, at, at uh, Federation headquarters and all of that. I know Kirsten Beyer has taken people down that route with the book and whatnot. So to me, for the, for the hardcore Voyager fans who have not read the books, that's a great Voyager moment. For the hardcore Voyager fans who have read the books, it's a reminder that that lineage in the books, while not canonical with a capital C, is appreciated and loved. Um, and Pete, from that topic of love for the fans, you know, to see with less fanfare, but I think even more lowercase d discovery online, to see the USS Nog, to be able to definitively connect, yeah. uh, at least in Alex Kurtzman's telling, the request being made at New York Comic Con in 2019, can't you do something to honor Aaron Eisenberg and to, Aaron, uh, to honor the character of Nog? And for him to say in the past week, we heard that request, we wanted to honor both, and now we have to me, Pete, that's even more special. It is. And for those who would say that they don't know or care about Star Trek, this definitively proves that false. They do, they listen and it matters. Um, pushing forward vis-a-vis -vis the idea of Federation Starfleet headquarters, Matt, they're down to 10% of their Zenith, 38 member worlds. 
uh, after 350k, there's an asterisk, there may be more. And if only we've introduced a displacement activated spore drive to be able to jump to these other places. Um, but we finally have a definitive idea of what Starfleet is, at least as what it knows it is and can account for itself because these relays are down as well. And again, talking about timing, I know that in the conceit of the story, it's been over a hundred years and whatnot, but this, an episode that says this week, not last week, not two weeks ago, that says this week, you can come out the other side of selfishness. And I know within the story, it's selfishness because they can't, keep the the network of the federation alive there's not the subspace relays there's not the ability to get from place to place but to go from looking inward to to what you can see to that selflessness of interconnectedness of of being concerned for others even though they're not right next to you and, and that sort of thing the promise of the fix whatever the fix is going to be whether it's uh, you know spore drives for all the ships whether it's they find the answer to the burn and they undo it. And now everybody can warp again. They find the magic fix to the relays with spore particles or whatever it's going to be. The, the notion of the Federation so small, but the, but the worlds are out there. It suggests that there can be that connected nature again. And the, that these worlds can be connected quickly and, and strongly. And that there really is a hope right around the corner. Kaminar is one of those 38 member worlds. They got it together. They came together. Kelpian and Baul. And uh, they're now members of this coalition of the in contact with, kind of. <laughs> um, so it's hopeful. Do you think we're going to get to Kaminar this season? Um, I don't know. I wouldn't feel cheated if we did not. If we just go on other adventures. Again, I really, really think that after two hard-fought, excellent seasons, the number one challenge that the creative crew, the writing and producing crew, had for Discovery was dealing with all these issues of canon and timeline and what you can and what you can't. And if somebody comes in and says, hey, I have a great idea about blank, immediately you're going to have the biggest Star Trek fan in the room say, well, no, you can't do quantum torpedoes because quantum torpedoes don't show up until the 24th. Oh, well, okay. So I think they're they're so embracing of the new that if we're, if we're going to go back to Kaminar, that's great. It could be a wonderful story. What are we going to get? We're going to get um, Serana is dead. She's been dead for almost a thousand years. That kind of stinks. Uh, but look, where once there were uh, huts on the beach, now there's super cool city that looks similar to yet needs to be designed different from the super cool city that uh, Burnham and Book were at. And uh, somebody quick draw that. No, it looks too similar. Not... Versus just, now we're going to go to like, the planet of the underwater people. That's a different adventure where we can learn about other things and, and go in a completely different direction. That's my suspicion, Pete. What about this idea of um, 
the red angel suit, the time crystal, Burnham's mom. Yeah, there was the needed expository conversation with the debrief, but the suit got self-destructed, right? In no way could that somehow be floating around uh, because there's been no crossing to the Terran universe in 500 years. And I, I hook up my time crystal and I rewire it. And then Cronenberg gets over to the mirror universe and brings uh, prime Lorca and they establish the Emerald chain. And Oh my God, it's all connected. I mean, it could be, I, I read that portion of the story, both the, the debrief recap of season two uh, and then the montage of Culber and company talking about season two. I kind of read it as the show having a little bit of fun just in terms of all these crazy, unbelievable adventures that as we were watching it at the time on the safety of our from the safety of our couches, it's very believable that Culber would die and then be dead. And then the thing, the, the network copies him and then he's a new copy and we see a fair amount of his rear end and then he comes back and like all of that makes sense when you recap it i think the show is having fun saying and then there's this one in a trillion once ever time crystal and time suit and colbert dead and back and reigning starfleet officers and so forth that's how i read it but could it all could it be read as silly adventures of the past but it's also masking set up for the future it certainly could be how much longer does discovery operate with 931 year old uniform designs uh that's a really good question those <laughs> my first thought pete is those uniforms are really expensive in the real world um so maybe that's just maybe that's part of the conceit of fine be, you know go in your old timey garb you know much as we can go to you know uh colonial towns even here in new jersey and see the the blacksmith reenactor dressed in real garb as he says oh your horse is worn out i shall make a new you know like there's some aesthetic benefit to that um did they discuss it in the story this week no and maybe that's the biggest signal towards we're not going to swap out all the uniforms yet because it's this pattern from switzerland that's like 5,000 feet per yard or something like that, and we dare not throw all these uniforms into storage. Finally, for me, Matt, Saru, in that conversation, um, says that uh, the erasure of the records of discovery, of the battle against control, of the spore drive, would have been done with keeping of the federation and starfleet um doesn't sound really transparent yeah on the one hand i agree on the other i don't know i don't know how much this episode is meant to be an entry point for new fans i know that certainly to my mind that scene was just reminding everybody here's been the story so far and here's why for realsies no one in starfleet would know um that the discovery is a it's a good ship with a good crew um and it fits into this general notion that vance is vance is more aware of the threat than the episode wants to discuss and that 
Vance's worst fears may have been in this mystery crew appearing through time or have they even appeared through time or are they somehow, you know, the, the bad guy that he knows is true, but most people do not. Um, so I think maybe there's an element there versus a more, uh, a more upfront nature. With that, let's go to Hailing Frequency. Hailing Frequency's open, sir. We start, Pete, with our Twitter poll, which had the following options. One pip, not Vance's Trek, got 2.2%. Two pips, who's gone? Pete, I couldn't say non's gone. Spoil it for some people. But non's gone, 6.5%. Three pips, blink, 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 got 19.6%. And then four pips, bold new start, got almost 72%. So some hearty responses there. Uh, In terms of uh, text responses, we heard from far beyond the stars hashtag starfleet as hell that's at ds9fbts who said there were so many great things in this episode but what really became clear is that saru is the perfect captain for discovery's arrival to the future he has been through this before when Giorgio plucked him from kaminar she essentially brought him to the future pete great catch there absolutely uh, we heard, uh, as mentioned before, we heard from Andre Yeager. That's at Dr. Polo in 1983. Love the new look of the Federation. Great story and loved non-sacrifice. Looks like Discovery will be sent in new missions. So where's the music coming from? Can't wait to hear your theories. I hope we did justice with our theories thus far. Uh, we also heard from James. That's at Big Killin'. So many badass women. It was a self-contained episode that left me wanting more. The music. Philippa's blackout and her hidden motives. The burn, Philippa's interrogation. What didn't we see? The three stooges in engineering came close to stealing the episode. I want more. Pete, I want to start using those phrases that James had uh, referring to it as <laughs> Philippa's blackout and then th- the three stooges in engineering. Love it. Yeah, yeah. We also heard from Jackie Wolf. That's at Jackie with an I, Wolf with an E. As usual, love discovery, hate CBS All Access. Wasted 20 minutes figuring out a fix for a line of text across the screen, only to have it appear again when I backtracked the episode to see my beloved Voyager again. Ended up watching with captions since I couldn't use my headphones. Uh, Pete, I had the same issue last week where you put headphones in and it has text across the screen. Um, CBS Access notwithstanding, Jackie says, I have a feeling that we're going back to the Mirror Universe for Season 3. Really like that prediction there. Uh, we heard from Dr. What, or pardon me, we, we heard from Izzel Galoff, that's at Dr. What, W-U-T-T. It was okay. Rachel Anchorol was a standout, and I'm a fan of hers forever. It was an okay episode. It was more uh, we, than an okay episode. Yes, I would politely disagree with Dr. What there. This was, especially on first view, this was a dazzling episode. Um, I think maybe on rewatch, where you know kind of the tricks of, the amazing new ships and the the brand new headquarters, whatnot. Maybe the story is a B plus or an A minus, but overall, especially on that first view, it's just it's just stunning. Uh, we heard from Edgar Danger. That's at Poe Trial. Great episode. Really opened this new world with the Federation. The only nitpick I have is having Michael speak with Doctor Addis. Like, should you have had Non, the brilliant Rachel Antrill, have her moment? Felt like felt a bit like well we need for Michael to solve this, uh, Pete. I think that's a fair criticism and probably just a result of who who's the series lead and who's the series recurring title credit person. Much in the same way where 
Michael went with Adira last week and then not just to trill, but has to go into the pool in order to experience the memories. You got to remember who's top build on this show. Yeah. Um, sometimes them's, them's the breaks. You might have time travel in multiple universes, but the lead is the lead. Uh, Pete, we heard from Spider-Ham Lincoln. That's at T-E-S-S-L-C-139. Uh, I recently started commenting on Facebook as Scott Lincoln. Hi. So, Pete, keep an eye out for Scott Lincoln on Facebook. Great episode. I look forward to more of this future Starfleet slash Federation. Name dropping the USS Voyager at episode start. Will we see it again? And thanks to a PG retweet, I learned about the USS Nog. Uh, and Scott included the the artwork that's been floating around with uh, Nog in the background and, and the ship. And it labeled as an Eisenberg class. Um, we also heard in response to that from Funnest Frontier, the Star Trek news podcast. Uh, great seeing Voyager J and the USS Nog. And Pete, that same Twitter account, at uh, Dex Lower, said, uh, to me, there was a lot of hints in this episode that make me feel like they are not in the Prime Universe. Also, Michelle Yeoh and David Cronenberg killed it. I got strong Section 31 vibes from them. So, Pete seems like lots of appreciation uh, for this episode. Oh, Pete, wait. I should mention one more tweet. Um, this was uh, in response. I had responded to a Rachel Antrill tweet about her uh, in makeup with uh, Saru and Linus. I said, how long does it take to get all this makeup done? Pete, and this morning she replied. She said three to 3.5 hours, give or take. Prosthetics, hair, beauty makeup, wardrobe, contacts, and breathers in that order. It takes an extremely talented group to get her in order. So dazzled by her response, flattered by her response. And my goodness, Pete, I had not stopped to think that there's all those steps. I just kind of look at it and go, ah, oh, they glued stuff to her face. Not there's layers and layers. And then they need to address her natural hair. They need to address her skin tone with beauty makeup and, and, and on and on and on. Pete, take us to Facebook, the elephant that never forgets. Oh, it does not, Matt. So uh, quite a bit of interaction for last week's uh, post and episode. And we're going to begin with a comment left by uh, Brian Diggs, who writes, The Trill said there was no, all caps, successful joining with another species. Rikers joining with Odon was, quote unquote, full, but it was not successful. Both Riker and Odon almost died because they were incompatible. I'm pretty sure we alluded to that last week. I'm not going to go back and listen to last week's podcast just to win a point. We will win the next point, Matt. I Certainly, think... Pete, we, we, we've we made reference to, you know, the Trill first appeared with Riker in the next yep. generation. And, and, yes. and yeah, it and, obviously and it didn't work. It only lasted for a certain amount of time. And yeah. that the uh, symbiont went to uh, another uh, host, a female host, um, later uh, discussions of the trill, later examinations of the trill returned to them with tattoos and not the bumpy head that Odon had never explained, whatever. Okay. Brian Diggs continues. However, I think you did not properly understand this episode. 
The Trill reaction to Adira had nothing to do with commentary on the acceptance of trans people. The joining with Adira was deemed an abomination and an aberration because Adira was basically a parasite carrying around a comatose or effectively brain-dead symbiote. The whole point of that plot is that Adira did not have access to Tal's memories. She barely had access to her own memories prior to a year ago. Pete, I think that's one perspective that what is literally presented is literally the case. I just don't know that that's the pool that Star Trek usually swims in. Usually Star Trek is looking for commentary about us in the real world and real world topics. Well, I responded respectfully. The metaphor is about the trans experience, particularly the idea someone else would determine identity. Uh, Brian replied, nope, that was about a demonstrably lacking identity. Adira was present with no mental presence of Tao whatsoever. That was the abomination and the aberration, which has nothing to do at all with, quote, someone else determining identity, unquote. Even Adira did not identify as Tal. And when she did finally identify as Tall and demonstrate that Tall was mentally active, she was accepted wholeheartedly by the trail. I, I mean, again, that's true, but Star Trek went out and got two trans performers uh, for, to my knowledge, the first the first time ever. And certainly it's the first time that Star Trek has has promoted it as such. Um, showed us a showed us these performers in a relationship. I know there's been some debate as to the characters' uh, own uh, thoughts on gender and how they're referred to in gender uh, in gendered terms within the episode as characters. But there's so much going on here where clearly I think everyone involved in the show is trying to connect it to the real world topic of acceptance of trans individuals. And I think perhaps there's an over-reliance on, you know, but there's a slug thing and there's spots on the foreheads, therefore it's only about Trill. I mean, Pete, I think of why was Worf on the bridge in The Next Generation? Was it because Klingons are cool, yo? Or is it because Gene Roddenberry said, I can't imagine a time that there's no Soviet Union, but we're going to take the Star Trek Russians and we're going to make them not just friends with the Federation, not just peaceful, but we're going to put a Russian on the bridge again, this time a metaphorical Russian in Worf, to show that we, to show commentary, not because turtlehead makeup is cool. Before I even needed to respond again, Matt, and what heartened me was the response of the other uh, listeners on our Facebook page. Elias Joe Ramsey responded to Brian. Kurtzman makes it quite clear and then takes a snippet of a quote from a Variety article. Using the trill as the lens for Adira and Gray's story also allowed the writers to skirt one of the most persistent storytelling hurdles for any Trek series. How can the show speak to the experience of trans and non-binary people today in a future 
in which trans and non-binary identity is a fully accepted reality? The answer was to make Adira's ability to host a Trill symbiont horrifying to many Trill, for whom the privilege of hosting is rare honor. I mean, I feel like it can't be explained better than that. It's using the sci-fi tools. The show is using the sci-fi tools available to it, uh, particularly the familiar tool of the, the Trill, which, uh, again, you would think in the 1990s that it would have been easier to explore these issues. I know there was that one, um, that one Deep Space Nine episode that did that. Uh, I must confess, as a, as a less enlightened uh, teen back in the day, that episode was more about, you know, like, look, Dax is kissing a girl than it was the commentary. But the commentary, there was the attempt at the commentary there. Most of the time, it was just a weirdo thing where Avery Brooks can hang out with a late, 20, uh, late 20-something woman, but she's smarter than him and has more life experience than him, and he calls her old man. That's a cute story thing. It really wasn't doing much in terms of talking about different slices of life in the real world. Brian uh, wrote in again, the trill did not find Adira's ability to host a symbiont horrifying. The trill found the idea of hosting a symbiont with no trace of the symbiont's mind being active. Horrifying. Once Adira demonstrated that Tao was mentally active, they accepted Adira as a host wholeheartedly. In the episode, the trill did not immediately reject Adira as a host. They asked Adira to demonstrate that Tao was mentally active, and when she started, I'm sorry, she stated that she has no mental connection with Tao whatsoever, they found that horrifying. What Kurtzman said is irrelevant. Just as referring to Adira with they slash them pronouns would be irrelevant and erroneous for episode four when episode four clearly uh, indicates that Adira refers to herself with she slash her pronouns. What Kurtzman says for PR purposes doesn't necessarily align with what the episode mm. depicts. And in this case, clearly does not. In episode four, Burnham presenting Adira to the Trill was the equivalent of someone presenting a mindless Frankenstein to a human. Here, I brought your child's brain back to you in this new body. They can walk around and do stuff, but otherwise, they are brain dead. You can't communicate with them in any way. You're welcome. Pete, the key word there, the key phrase is PR purposes. And there, I think, therein lies the rub. I thought perhaps the listener was a, a fan of French literary critic uh, Roland Barthes, who you know wrote about the death of the author and that, that, that authors' intentions and biographical facts have no weight in interpretation. I thought maybe that's where they were coming from. However, to dismiss Kurtzman's statements as mere PR... I think gives great insight because it presumes that Kurtzman cannot mean what he says. And it presumes that Kurtzman and the production cannot have intended this character to be trans. Therefore the character is in no way reflective of the trans experience because it's just being said to sell clicks. Um, maybe that is the case. 
I just suspect that there's a preponderance of evidence against it, including the fact, Pete, that, um, you know, I, I think as enlightened as most Star Trek fans are towards infinite diversity and infinite combination, and, and as enlightened as we have come in the last years, the last decades in terms of being more inclusive, uh, I think that maybe the general... Um, uh, Pete, I'll speak for myself, perhaps not literally, because I hopefully I do appreciate infinite diversity and infinite combinations. I think that fr from my perspective as middle-aged white male, uh, middle class, etc., not turning trans people into, not looking at them as weirdos or as a punchline to a joke, um, not using phrases like tranny and things like that, um, I think that that's been the most understanding trying to understand the perspective of trans people i think has been the, the latest in the list of understanding people who are not like me um and i think i suspect that maybe that experience has been true for a lot of people where you know you're fine with the black captain and the lady captain and you're fine with fine with people of color at the workplace and and so on and so forth but not quite there yet when you're like well, is that a he or a she and i think that as we continue to evolve, hopefully we as people in general, and we particularly as Star Trek fans, you can say, and I ultimately don't care. Um, I ultimately don't care, period. Um, but this is an episode that cares about trans people and the trans experience. And when Kurtzman is saying it, when the production is saying it, and when people, frankly, who are closer to that community... Uh, like Anthony Rapp, like Wilson Cruz, uh, though they are not trans, as part of the LGBTQ plus community, when they are seeing it, I think it's time they can solve, they can answer these questions better than we can, and they have. And sometimes maybe what is challenging for people like me, middle-aged white guys, is the ability to say, I'm not the center of the universe. I will just listen to your authority because you know better than me. Sometimes that's hard to admit, but that doesn't make it false. In fact, it makes it true. Brett Williams responds to uh, Brian Diggs here saying, I realize you're desperately, you're holding desperately to this pedantic point, but it doesn't apply. And it's obvious that the writers were trying to communicate, including them expressly saying so. I'll leave you in the denial tent of protection you've created. Uh, yeah, I, Pete, dialogue's an effective means of communication, as uh, Saru said, and uh, I guess if you're at an impasse, you're just at an impasse. Scott Lincoln, who you referenced before, Matt, on Twitter, he writes in, this was a good episode, and I'm glad they didn't try to hang their hats on the Dax symbiont. Discovery has already relied heavily on Spock, Pike, Sarek, Amanda. It should continue to do what it does well and be its own entity without relying anymore on Star Trek of years past. Yeah, I love that. I think that's part of the mission statement for this season, which is really, really to be brand new Star Trek and not need those things as wonderful as those things absolutely were in the past. Pete, let's head to the email machine. Uh, the first one uh, from Heidi, 
Star Trek has had lots of female eye candy over the years. I saw you guys talking about Andrea from Classic Trek, for example. Thank goodness Admiral Vance is on the scene. Talk about a DILF. Pete, that's from Heidi C. in Utah. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard that expression before. And all right. If, uh, if, that's what you like to look at at the screen and we're going to use that term here i guess more power to you uh pete i'll just mention anecdotally you know not only did my wife say hey that's the guy from the mummy uh she she noted that the past 20 years have been uh, been kind to him uh but anywho pete let's move on to an email from derg who says uh dear pete and matt wonderful podcast again on episode four last week I just watched episode five, and Discovery continues its high-quality run of episodes this season, although I felt this was a notch down from the first four. Let me get my nitpicks out of the way quickly. Non-Aryan friendship felt oversold to the viewers, in my opinion, and not really earned on screen. We never saw any signs of the two of them being close friends in season two. In fact, in Project Daedalus, Non suspiciously followed Arium's every move, and for good reasons, before finally engaging in a fight against her, along with Michael. It just feels awkward that she persistently mentioned Arium as the reason for making two life-changing decisions. They met for the first time when she came aboard Discovery with Pike, and the two didn't have an on-screen conversation in Season 2, as far as I can remember. Uh, next, Michael overstepped her boundaries and came across insensitive when they met with Admiral Vance. I found myself agreeing with Vance throughout the hour. He needed to be as cautious, if not suspicious, when there is so little of the Federation left. I am glad Saru was there to remind Michael of her duties and manners at one point. Moving on, so Detmer is still suffering from PTSD, yet still responsible for piloting Discovery. Shouldn't uh, she be the number one priority for Culber or Pollard at this point? Uh, now for the good. Fantastic couple of scenes between Giorgio and none other than David Cronenberg. Not sure what happens with Giorgio at the end there, with her eyes fixated when Michael tries to get her attention. Culber had an important role for the second episode in a role, and Wilson Cruz delivered again. Saru and Tilly are such positive forces. I can say the same about Adira. Jet Reno is always a delight. Michael remains an inspiration for millions of viewers, I dare to say. The visuals, lighting, makeup, and special effects are all second to none on TV. I watch a lot of TV, and I don't know any other show at level with Discovery in these areas. Thank you always. Apologies if this was too long. Pete, certainly no apologies required there. That's from Markalian Derg at Markalian Derg on Twitter. So your thoughts there, Pete? Never too long there. Um, the non-Arium uh, thing, I think their bond was forged in terms of Arium fighting uh, what was uh, taking over her and really her guilt at having been the one to shoot her out the airlock. Um, and I, I think it's fair that non, you know, has, has come to find that to be her, uh, her raison d'etre. Pete, I know that this episode has fleet Admiral Charles Vance. Perhaps we need to upgrade the, the rank for Admiral Fred from the Netherlands. Will he come out the other end of this comment as perhaps Federation president Fred from the Netherlands? Let's listen and find out. 
Hello, Matt and Pete, and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 5. Very good episode. The amazement of the crew watching their arrival at Starfleet headquarters and standing at those windows really reminded me of the main crew of the original series in Star Trek The Motion Picture where they arrive at the space dock and see the Enterprise for the first time. I really wonder if we will see at a certain time also the Discovery crew in the uniforms of the new Federation. I really can understand the mistrust of the new Federation. So that they do their checkups and and need to have proof what the Discovery crew is telling them. I do understand, although it feels for us a little bit too strict and unfriendly, certainly after everything the Discovery had to go through, but of course they didn't know. I found it a little bit a trope that when Burnham said, okay, we have to prove ourselves and after that they will trust us, well, they did the job and at the end everything is almost okay. I'm very sad that we lost Commander Nan, but there is still a possibility we will see her back. I still expect some tension between the Discovery crew and the new Federation, although they did manage to keep the crew at least together. And of course we can expect that at the end the Discovery crew will solve the problem about the burn. We still have some mysteries about what is happening to Lieutenant Detmer and is it just PTSD? What is happening to Georgiou? Is the news that the Terran Empire is drifting away too much even for her? That was all for now. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. I can definitely appreciate uh, Fred's comment about the motion picture and space dock. I got a um, Star Trek three space dock vibe out of it. And we've even seen echoes with the way that uh, lower decks sent it up. Uh, you know, the, the over dramatic um, too many shots from different angles of starships um, you know, the, the starship porn, if you will. Or, or even, you know, my friends, we've come home, that kind of thing. Uh, I, I think it's, it's familiar turf and enjoyable turf that kind of return to return to home. Um, Pete, uh, Fred wondering as we did, uh, will we have discovery, the discovery crew get those new uniforms? Uh, and then Fred of course wants non back. What do you say on both? How long, if at all, until we see the new uniforms? And then, not even if at all, when will we get non back? I'm thinking season four on the new uniforms. Um, I think we'll see non back later this season. Uh, and then similarly, like I mentioned before, you know, here we are. We've we have five episodes done. We're just starting to be able to investigate the burn after five episodes despite it being introduced you know a month ago uh when will the burn be solved when will the, the mystery of the burn be solved pete will it even be this season or are they setting up an arc to next year oh i think you've got to answer that conflict this season i 
I look at it like a domino situation. I think deciding, determining what was behind the burn will open up a, a new set of questions. Well, certainly we'll keep an eye out for that. How can people be in touch with you to share their thoughts? Is mom the source of the burn? Is it hashtag it's all burn necked? Uh, is it Pete as our friend Zort uh, 70 Ian in the UK uh, said? Is it, uh, is it with a ham being burned? Uh, how can people be in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 11,694 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with a P-H, all one word, like it today. For those listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we will be back tomorrow to talk Mandalorian episode 203. If you're just here for Star Trek, same Trek time, same Trek channel next Saturday as we talk Discovery episode 306. Uh, also in this past week in the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we talked about WandaVision, then the show announced the date. So Pete probably, I don't know, Monday or Tuesday, we'll do a quick update there as well. Uh, for all our Marvel fans. But for now, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you, Pete, the final word. Was any of this in the handbook?